Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're also on BitChute. I'm not on uh, YouTube with the Awakening Podcast because I got kicked off. I've got four other podcasts, <laughs> speaking podcast, the meditation podcast, learn Polish and the crypto, as well as being a podcasting coach. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcast. I'm looking forward to this call today. And even though we're both Irish, it will cover everybody in the world because of my own research, I've realized that this is replicated everywhere. So my guest, he's an author of two books. I've got one of them here. He's activist, actionist, co-founder of Rights to Homes and iBig, I believe it's called. Please welcome Tom Darcy. Good morning, and thank you very much for being the very first international media source or podcast coach to have me on. And... I had heard of you before and I saw like you're doing brilliant videos on TikTok. So obviously I'm going to include that, but I suppose let's just start off with, I suppose, who's Tom and you can kind of really go through the journey and then I'll kind of interject with my own experience as well. Okay. Well, I always considered myself at the start as, a, as an, an activist who accidentally became an actionist. Uh, maybe it's all the A's that I like because I married somebody with the name Antoinette. But I was formerly a developer and my wife, well, she was a designer. And this was going back to the early noughties. Um, my father taught me, I come from Monopoly. My father taught me a very long time ago, never to invest your own money. And it was something that I was adamant that I would never use so I started on small developments and then ultimately ended up uh, in a development in Malahide and Hoped on Dublin's north side. And we went down one uh, January uh, to sign documents for a loan. And literally it was they needed the family home declaration, which I actually said, no, you're not getting that, I'm not using my family home as security. They accepted that because I had other developments, which everybody was happy. And I read over the contract meticulously. There was nothing untowards about it. It was a, a standard uh, adhesion contract that banks were actually doing at the time. And everything was fine. Now, in my very first book, Waiting for the Sheriff, uh, there was a twist in the tale when I went for planning, which is a, it, it's a very in-depth uh, story that raises issues of serious um, intimidation. There was a judicial review that was forced, forcibly removed. There was an investigation of criminal activity into Fingal County Council. Uh, there was even former um, participants in the Mahon Tribunal that materialized. And all of this was kept secret. But ultimately, um, the bank in 2008, they, I was with the AFE, and like everybody else, uh, nobody was aware of what was going on behind the scenes. As soon as Northern Rock collapsed, and this was retrospective in my investigations, which I can speak clearly now of, but at the time nobody knew of. Um, as soon as Northern Rock collapsed, Brian Lenahan and Brian Cowan called in all the banks in November 2008, sorry, 2007. Uh, he was aware that the financial crisis was about to happen. So they created what was called the Doomsday Report. 
Now, it was a very bleak report, but ultimately I got my hands on it. And it's a 200-page report. They recessed for Christmas. They had agreed two weeks after um, the government resumed that they would have another meeting. Now, again, this is eight months prior to the bailout. And we're talking January 2008. Um, it was agreed at the first meeting that all banks in Ireland will declare bankruptcy, insolvency. Um, they went in on the 14th of February 2008 into the company's registration office in Dublin. And they actually declared under a C1 charge bankruptcy. Now, ordinarily in the company's office, as everybody knows, uh, anything that happens in a, with a company, immediately within 24 hours, it's put up for any potential investor or shareholder to identify or to be informed of any serious changes. Now, that didn't happen, unfortunately. That didn't happen until June. Uh, so somebody had serious influence to ensure that nobody knew what was going on. Then, as we know, in September, the banks went in and got bailed out and they pulled the plug on everyone. Um, eight weeks after the September bailout, they back, went back into the CRO, the company's registration office, and stated that they were solvent, stated that uh, everything was fine, and never mentioned the C1 charge at all. Now, that was an act of fraud. So my story now begins because I got a demand letter for the loans. Now, I only had two conditions within my loan. One was completion and the other was refinance. So I hadn't breached the conditions because the conditions were solely within the control of the bank. They were the ones who were refinancing for me to finish the developments and I couldn't sell the developments until they were finished. Um, unfortunately, at the time, um, I suffered a family fire when we were away. And when I came back, my home was burnt to the ground. We lost all our worldly uh, possessions, everything. We had literally had nothing, the clothes we stood up in. And I was also dealing with the loss of my mother and my two brothers at the same time. And I had uh, a mental sabbatical, as I call it. Um, my wife informed the AIB. Now, I suppose at that stage, we were all thinking that these were conscionable people, pillars of society, that they would actually, you know, be empathetic. The day she informed them was the same day they trotted into court and got a judgment against me. So now I was dealing with the judgment. I had Ireland's top solicitors, who I named in the book, so I can quite easily name in a podcast, Ivor Fitzpatrick, and I paid over 160,000 euros in costs. They knew I was depleted. They knew I had no money. And they advised me to surrender everything. And I said, hold on here. Uh, no, I done nothing wrong. And why would I give my family home? Because I didn't use it as security. Their advice uh, was give it up. So I said, nope. 
And my history, I'm now writing my third book, which is called Being uh, a Whistleblower. And it goes back to my original history. I was in the coal business uh, in 1980. And they deregulated or introduced smokeless zones and put me out of business. And I lost everything. So I had experienced that firstly in my 20s. Then in my 30s, I was in the taxi business and they deregulated that. And I lost four taxi licenses and I lost my home. So here I am now. And just for those that wouldn't know, in Ireland, I think it was over 100,000 to get a taxi license. Was it? It was, it was in the region of 80, 86,000, yeah. yes. And they just overnight just changed it, which means, and people before used to use it as like an investment. So you could sell your taxi license when, you know, if you decided in 20 years time that you wanted to kind of use it as an investment. But that disappeared overnight. Overnight, I was broke. Overnight, I was homeless. So here is the second time. Now, fast forward to 2000, and here I am with the bank trying to make me homeless. So I invested in everything I knew in educating myself regarding law and banking. I went on to every forum I could find. And at the time, there was a case in Johannesburg. It was called the Bakwa case. And it was the very first case ever to deal with the word securitization or fractional reserve lending, most people understand it to be. Uh, you will find the word securitization in every contract with a bank. And I followed that case. Then I went to some cases in America. There was a lot of cases with fractional reserve lending. There was a lot of cases with dealing with securities and cross securities and mortgage-backed assets and a whole litany of language that I just didn't understand. But I vested myself in for two solid years, studying everything I could, dealing with everybody on every social media platform. And I started to represent myself in court as a lay litigant. Now, the policy in Ireland is, is that gov government appointed judges. So you're dealing with a judge who has been appointed by government and they follow the line of what's politically advantageous. And how I can say that, and I reported in my books, I also named and chained judges because I investigated them. And most of the judges at the time were heavily indebted. There was a cartel within the Irish judiciary of barristers, solicitors, legal firms who were indebted to over 100 million uh, to the same banks who tomorrow could have making them bank. So we had the most and still have the most corrupt banking institutions in the world. And yet, if you look statistically at the outcome of any positive case for anybody taking a case in Ireland against a bank, it's zero. Yet in England, it's 65%. In Germany, it's 58%. In South Africa, which is an English judicial system that the Irish system is based on, it is actually 48% in favor. Ireland, the most corrupt banking institution in the world, zero. So I knew what I was up against. I also knew the judges I was up against. So there's, there's so much availability with the access of Google and people who want to help you on the internet. So I went in as a lay litigant on my first day in front of Judge McGovern who was seeking, the bank was seeking a possession order on my home. And when I stood up, 
Um, obviously, I claimed, as I always do, and I tell everybody to state that my rights to access to justice were denied. It is my constitutional right to be treated equally and fairly. And I asked the court to, to appoint legal advocate and a legal firm to me, which literally he ignored me. And then I said, judge, and ironically, it was just by coincidence, there was a guy in a wheelchair to my right. And I couldn't have been a better. Um, now, my son is disabled, so I can use that openly. Um, I couldn't have been a better analogy to give. And I said, judge, the man to my right is disabled. If he came to court claiming that his spine was snapped, he was involved in a serious accident, he'll never walk again, he has serious mental and psychological issues as an issue, you would request quantification of that. The bank is claiming here before you today a liquidated sum, yet they're not proving anything. They're not showing how it was quantified, what interest was attached, whether or not um, a security was attached to it, or whether or not they had a derivative. And he interrupted me. And he said to me, what's a derivative? And I said, Judge, when a loan is taken out, a loan across the world, doesn't matter what country, when a bank issues a loan, they go to the security, they say, we want to, let's say for argument's sake, for easiness, 200,000. We want to give a loan of 200,000 and put it out onto the markets, see what you can yield over 20 years. Now, in Ireland, we have dirt tax, which if you invest 200,000 in the bank for 20 years, you'd probably be lucky to get about 220 grand back in 20 years time. Whereas if you were on the banking industry, you put out 200,000, you will probably get a yield of about 800,000 over 20 years. The bank immediately gets 400,000, which they don't have any risk. The bondholders do. So now the bank gets back 400, gives you 200, they've made 200, and all they're left with to do is to manipulate the interest. Now, every bank in the world manipulated interest. Um, I initiated, and how I can verify and prove that, in my recent book, Irish Tears and Nation for Trade, it tells the story of the rise and demise of IBIC, which there are abbreviations of the International Banking Investigation Group. I was invited to London uh, and I met with a whole load of securities experts. When I came back, I put an ad on RTE, which is the national radio a television uh, station of Ireland. And I ran, ran an ad for two months offering free mortgage checks. Every mortgage check was overcharged, everyone. Fixed variable tracker prime. So I then could categorically prove that the liquidated sum that the bank were claiming before Judge McGovern was false. So I said to Judge McGovern, in relation to the man that's disabled, I'm seeking the same rights. I need to know whether or not there was a derivative attached to the facility, whether there was a cross security attached to the security, whether or not the bank received full payment for the loan. Now, Judge McGovern, obviously, 
uh, didn't want to get into that because then we would prove that the Irish taxpayers who bailed out the banks of 64 billion uh, were, participated in the greatest con in the world. And this was a forced con. So Judge McGovern said, don't want to hear about that. You owe the money, you got the money, pay it, or we're giving a possession order. So there was no talking to him. So ultimately, I, I handed him off a piece of paper asking him to recuse himself. And he said, I'll do no such thing. I said, Judge, your wife's name is Olivia. Uh, she is heavily indebted with investments in Dame Street, Fox Rock, Kalini, and you're also invested in those properties. You're biased. So he recused himself. Now, that was the first judge to ever recuse himself. And just to explain that, that means basically kind of dismiss himself from the, the court, yeah, as a judge. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So now I have um, a possession order in front of me, and I appeal that immediately. But the junior counsellor, and it's very significant when we mention this junior counsel at the time, which was in 2012, um, he immediately ran into another judge and sought for the order to be um, carried out. So the judge was called Judge Paul Gilligan. And the very first thing he said to me, before he actually initiated the court proceedings, obviously he had heard what I'd done with Judge McGovern. He actually in turn said to me, before the case was started, Mr. Darcy, you haven't paid back a penny. I have no sympathy for you whatsoever. So I turned around and replied, Judge, if we were up in the CCJ, which is the Courts of Criminal Justice, you would have just advocating a declaration of guilt before you even heard the case. So I'm asking you to recuse yourself. He said, I'll do no such thing. I said, Judge, I said, in response to your biased outburst and the fact that you're heavily indebted in a development called the church in Abbey Street with other legal firms, with other barristers, even the barristers who are representing the bank here today. Um, there is legal cost, or sorry, legal uh, investment. I'm asking you to recuse yourself. So he recused himself. So now I get fast tracked. I have an appeal in, I have a possession order, and we are now in the court's recess in the summer. I'm finding out more and more information about banking. I'm getting a little bit of notoriety on Facebook. And all of a sudden, people are sending me, whistleblowers are coming to me covertly. Um, I suppose I didn't have much consideration to my own safety because I was meeting people at three o'clock in the morning down lanes and everything because they were risking their jobs, they were risking their career, their life, everything. And I was getting more and more information, boxes of information. I was getting emails up to 500 a day. And if I, I, as I wrote my first book, I, going through all of these 
stories of people who were being evicted, they had leukemia, cancer, their children were dying, and they were looking for help. And ultimately, um, Christmas in January, while I had, this was January 10 years ago, actually, in this month, um, I had the possession order, but I had appealed it to the Supreme Court. And this was at a time before the Court of Appeal. And lo and behold, the sheriff came out with 10 goons um, in Balaclavas uh, to evict me. And the only person, even though I was stopping eviction throughout Ireland, on that given day, I was on my own. And my eldest son at the time, who was 31, um, he was with me. Now, they came in, they burst through the doors. I had rang on Garda Corner, which is the Irish police. And I also rang the Irish media, the Irish Independent. And they all arrived out. And everybody was inside the house. The sheriff was inside the house. The security was inside the house. The police were outside. And the media were out with their telescopic lenses taking photographs. Now, while in uh, the house, I informed the sheriff that he didn't have an order to expedite me legally. He only had an order of possession. But to get an order of vacant possession, you have to get that in court. So I told him to go back to court and get the order. I then, at that stage, as a sergeant from Malahide Garda Station arrived in, and I told him that this is the equivalent of me being on death row. I have an appeal into the warden, and you're coming in now to execute me. What are you going to do if I win? Dig me up, give me a 360 and say, go along? Anyway, the long and short of it is when I did go to the Supreme Court, um, actually, i just retract there. At that eviction, uh, which was recorded on video and audio, they knocked my son out unconscious. He was bounced off the ground from behind and the assault was videotaped and recorded. The guards were looking in at it and they seen it, but they stated they seen nothing. My son was unconscious. I rang an ambulance, which was captured in the next day's independent newspaper. Uh, I'm standing over my unconscious son's body, trying to recover, put him into recovery position. And the sheriff walked on his body to the applause of eight guys and balaclavas. Then he walked back over on his body again. And I completely lost it for any parent to look at their son unconscious. And a man to walk on his body, which he thought was hilarious, I completely lost it. And I picked up, um, I'm quite, I used to be quite apt in martial arts. And I picked up uh, two feet of scaffolding. There are the steel bars that go into scaffolding. And I showed the guards and anybody around me how skilled I was with them. And I told them, if anybody comes near me, I was going to kill them. Self-defense. Eight people, one man. So everybody left. My son was taken off unconscious to hospital. And we saved the property. Fast forward to September. I won my case because I was able to prove, A, the bank had lied. They committed forgery. At one stage, and this junior counsel 
who I haven't named yet, is very important. He produced a document in the Supreme Court. Uh, the document was dated March of 2006, where it said that my wife um, had agreed that our family home in Hoat wasn't our family home. And he produced this document. And I looked at the document, asked for an immediate adjournment, came back in two days later, with a letter, letter from the Law Society stating that the solicitor that signed that document wasn't a solicitor at the time. In fact, she was still in UCD. The Revenue Commissioner said she hadn't actually joined the solicitor's firm for two years after the date of the letter. This was a deliberate act. It was fraud, deceit, and it was seeking to, dis to uh, change the opinion of court. Uh, also, the issue of my wife's signature of the declaration on the family home was forged. Uh, I was also overcharged 1.2 million euros. So I had all of these issues and so many more criminal issues that the Supreme Court stated that I had raised so many significant issues that this had to be heard by way of plenary hearing. Plenary hearing is that everything that has been said or is said has to be proven, everything. And I got my course. Now the junior counsel jumped up and said, no, 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 Mr. Darcy's not entitled to his course. The Supreme Court stated and stipulated, yes, he is. Pain. That was 10 years ago. I still haven't received my costs, and I still never got my plenary hearing because the junior counsel ran into another section of the courts called the central office. He took out an A4 page and discontinued the Supreme Court order. He circumvented an order of the Supreme Court by lodging in that he was discontinuing the case and that was accepted. So the ultimate court in Ireland, constitutionally protected, their order after four years of litigation can be just dismissed like that. So then I was back again fighting. The initiated uh, 90 TDs, Top to Dollars, which is the Irish for Member of Parliament, signed into law to facilitate the banks, the Land and Conveyancing Law Reform Act, which we dubbed the eviction bill. Because at the time, there was a lacuna, a Viden law, where you couldn't evict Irish people. So the Irish banks needed a new law, and to facilitate that, 90 Irish TDs actually voted in power, in law, to evict their own constituents. And we tried, we took, I took out an injunction against the president signing it. We had vigils outside Orsonuturong, which is the president's palace, and he just ignored it. And he and signed it into power. And just on that, was it Indikenny he was the leader at the time? He wasn't, yes. And, and you do realize he's actually working for a vulture fund. No. Oh, I, I actually have stipulated that. Uh, I actually know his salary he's receiving. Uh, I also know his very first introduction and the minutes of the meeting that was taken with Vulture Funds. Uh, as I say, people are very vulnerable when it comes to seeking a Freedom of Information request or a GDPR, which 
hopefully I'll have time to explain. But anyway, um, going back to my issue and my case, this new law, uh, which was going retrospective, they literally were using it to go back in time. So I took out what was called a constitutional challenge on retrospective law. So the junior counsel went in under summary summons, the original summary summons that they had used against me four years earlier, changed three things. One, the liquidated number, which again was almost two million over, overcharged. Two, the date. And three, he was relying on this new retrospective law. So I took out a constitutional challenge against that retrospective law. Now, I was gaining more and more popularity because here was this guy, no qualification of law, the very first person in Irish history to win a Supreme Court case as a lay litigant. I got back my home, got back my properties, and to everybody, I was this um, magician. And everybody started to come to me. So with a good friend of mine called Jerry Bees, we reinitiated the Irish Land League. And it was at a time when there was an average of 50 to 60 houses a day being taken, farms being taken, businesses being taken. And we were going up and down the country trying to save uh, family homes. Ultimately, we ended up outside the Old Sops auction in uh, the Shelburne Hotel. And we got a little bit of notoriety. Uh, I made a mistake calling Constance Markovic a man, uh, which is ironic because I live next door to the park of Constance Markovic all my life. But anyway, the significant part was that in that interview, which was cut out, I raised the issue of the C1 mortgage charge. So to affect my credibility, they emphasized the issue of me calling uh, Constance Markovic a man rather than female. So... Progressing from that, we then set up Right to Homes, which was a non-profit company of guarantee uh, to facilitate those just like myself who had no money for access to justice. Uh, and that is a constitutional violation. It's also a violation against the European rights uh, and numerous violations regarding your rights civil. Um, when you consider that Shawnee Fitzpatrick, the head of Anglo-Irish, most criminal bank in, in the world, actually stated, even though he was a multimillionaire, had investments in oil rigs, said he was impoverished, said he didn't have the money for legal advocates, and they appointed him the best legal counsel in Ireland that ended up being paid by the taxpayers a million euros, the highest paid legal aid bill in Ireland, uh, and he got off. Yet the Irish citizens who he caused this devastation and were losing their homes, weren't entitled to legal uh, access. So Right to Homes was established. Uh, we couldn't get any funders. So we were invited over to New York and we met with American, Anglo-American um, descents, pension funds who wanted to invest altruistically to help Irish people save their homes. And we had nearly 600 million being offered. We also had um, the likes of Crow Park was being offered for gigs. We had uh, bands who were going to work 
for nothing to generate all of this money to help Irish people. The only one condition was we had to be registered as a charity. At the time, there was vulture funds getting charitable status like confetti. Remember, the reg charities regulator in Ireland, just like judges, is appointed by the government. We made an application. Three years later, the longest application in Irish history for charitable status, it was refused. So I'm still fighting. Uh, I'm on my own. I'm writing now books. The very and only interviews I got was Jerry Beads told me that if you run as an MEP, you're entitled to two interviews, live interviews. So I ran as an MEP just for the sake of getting the interviews. And on prime time, which is one of Ireland's significant uh, radio radio shows, or sorry, television shows. David McCullough asked me one and only question. Firstly, he asked me, did I think the general public should have sympathy for me because I was a developer? With the innuendo that I was something absolutely disgusting. And the causation of um, the loss of homes. I told him as I had investigated him, that when he took out his mortgage, if he was asked a question, the day he took out his mortgage, like every other person in this world, that the banks were insolvent, they were trading illegally, they didn't have a banking license, they forged their securities license, would you have taken out a loan? And after some persistence by me, he admitted no. I done the same then in the Vincent Brown show, which again is on TV3 or was on TV3, in regard to the Anglo tapes, where Bo said Fitzgerald regarding the securitization of six billion. It was on the tapes, everybody heard it. And I asked Vincent Brown, why have you not questioned that? Why has not any member of the government questioned it? Why has no member of the media questioned it? And he said he didn't, he didn't recall that statement. They were my one and only um, entrance into the Irish media. I was never invited back. So I, I actually saw the interview uh, with Vincent Brown and you were calling out the politicians and their party voted for the eviction bill. And, and that is a time when he should have stuck by you. Everything you said was correct. And he was basically attacking you and tried to belittle you in front of the rest of them, where it was they were all guilty, the people that were actually sitting next to him. Well, as I, as I identified in my book, TV3 actually received a massive bailout from the Irish government. All the Irish media, I, IMM, which is Dennis O'Brien, which I named in my book, so I, he's never sued me for libel. Um, he got bailed out to the tune of 250 million, yet he has 8 billion. And he's also not living in Ireland. I think he's living in Malta. He's living basically or the island man that he the doesn't Bahamas. pay any tax. He lives Bahamas, in Nassau yeah. in the Bahamas. Yeah. And ironically, it is the Irish taxpayers who are now paying his private hospitals. Uh, I could go on about every person that I've written about. But anyway, getting back to the issue of uh, the Irish people being evicted. Um, we then had what I call the ethical funding year where everybody wanted to be an ethical funder but to help people out but when you read the contracts 
people were going from the fire into the frying pan. And the whole thing, we had Fina Gale and we had Labour uh, inviting vulture funds in, saying it was the best thing in the world. This was going to resolve the issues. But when you read the manifestos and the contracts of these pension funds across the world, you very quickly realised that they weren't regulated, they weren't licensed, they didn't have to adhere to any banking legislation, either nationally or internationally, and they could literally do anything they wanted. So we had government introducing legislation for them during COVID. Um, we had lockdowns as everybody suffered. But during our lockdowns, our government stealthily introduced legislation to rewrite legislation of 200 years old for vulture funds. They betrayed every citizen in this country. And when they were questioned, they ignored the questions. We have had numerous issues regarding fraud in government, pressing buttons when people weren't there, laws being passed. We are the most corrupt uh, country in the world. And just and, on the, the, the vulture funds, because there's a very good book, uh, Tax Haven Ireland, I believe. Like yeah, some correct. of these vulture funds, which were making incredible amount of profits, were paying 250 euro tax or zero. Absolutely. Every vulture fund in Ireland that came in up to 2018 got a tax clearance from the revenue commissioners and from charitable status. And ironically, you had members of solicitors firms you had members of government on the boards of these vulture funds. And everybody was making millions for evicting families. The Irish media wouldn't report a thing. I send, up to this day, I probably sent 1,700 press statements, requests, phone calls, emails. Uh, I just do it on, on a weekly basis because it gives me confirmation going forward when I'm writing, as I say, my, my latest book, uh, that... It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what evidence you produce. RTE, the directorship of RTE is appointed by government. So RTE is owned by the government. They won't report anything. Irish newspapers are owned by Dennis O'Brien. They won't report anything. The radio stations are owned by Dennis O'Brien. They won't report anything. So you're literally waiting or hoping to get outside um, Ireland. And that's where... Uh, my latest book, Irish Tears of Nation Betrayed, shows what happened. I decided to put an ad on the Wall Street Journal and on USA Today and ran it for a full week with a readership of over 200 million people. And the ad was quite simple. Have you been adversely affected by Irish banks? I have evidence and proof to show that you were defrauded. Contact www.waitforthesheriff.com. I expected millions of people to contact me. Um, I had verified evidence. I had contacted on forums uh, states' attorneys seeking to bring class actions against Richie Boucher, Bank of Ireland, Colin Doherty, AIB, and um, Shawnee Fitzpatrick, Anglo, who had committed wire fraud. Uh, they had also falsified their share index. I thought this was a no-brainer. Granted, I was threatened. I was told to watch myself crossing the road. I was told I'd be lucky if I lived out a month. And we had, I had my passport ready. I thought I was going to be getting interviews all over the world. And lo and behold, the first day it went out, no response. 
not one visit. Next day, no response, not one visit. We got our, our uh, IT crap guys to check. Nobody looked at it. Five days later, nobody looked at it at all. 19 people looked at it in Russia. So I focused on the 19 people in Russia. And in the same state in Russia, the same 19 visits were made. In my first book, Waiting for the Sheriff, I had identified how KPMG was appointed as special liquidator over the National Nationwide Building Society and Aramine Residential Securities. Now, that, normally that appointment would take 12 months before anything was evaluated and included. On the very day of the appointment by Kieran Wallace, he wrote a check to Aramine Residential Securities from the Irish taxpayers to a one shareholder owner of Aramine Residential Securities for 2.3 billion euros. I followed that check and found it went to Rosneft in Russia. Rosneft were at that time had an embargo against it by the US and the UN for fueling planes in Afghanistan and Syria. The Irish taxpayers funded genocide. That was in my first book. So I knew where the 19 people in Russia had an interest in why. Then I decided to go, as nobody has ever done in the history of the world, I went to the Catholic Church. And I managed to get the Irish Bishops' Council to support my book. The first in world history. The first time any bishop, any bishops' council, ever supported a lay litigant's book, a lay person's book. Bishop Michael Smith from Mullingar became my crusader. I had pictures I posted on Facebook. I notified the world's media. First in history. Last book to be supported by the Catholic Church was called the Bible. Here we are, Michael Smith Bishop advocating everything I was saying in that book. But the media didn't think it was newsworthy. I then managed to convince Matty McGrath, a TD, a member of Irish Parliament, to raise my book in the Irish Parliament. The first book raised on the history of Ireland. The first book ever to be raised in Dáil Éireann since the creation of the Constitution. Not newsworthy. So, fast forward to where I am now. We're getting to the end. Um, I managed to get a solicitor's firm on my behalf to seek a settlement with AIB. And during the settlement, they sold my loan. And lo and behold, uh, the new Vulture Fund took it up. And the first thing they done was appointed a receiver. Now, because there's a family home, you can't appoint a receiver, but anyway, they didn't care. And during COVID, they broke into my family home. They stole 180,000 euros worth of possessions. Eight men came out in Balaclavas uh, to another property in my area, owned by me, broke in. And my neighbor's child urinated on herself, thinking that it was some horrific Holocaust. 
And this was all done during COVID and lockdown. I then done a GDPO request on the Vulture Fund under agents and found that they'd actually got six, they'd commissioned six independent valuations on my assets. Ironic part was I was offering 1.1 million more than the assets were worth. So they'd illegally broke into my home. They'd illegally stole 200 grand's worth of stuff. They were getting more than they should have. And yet they weren't happy. I've made currently 12 offers, more than the assets are worth. And now the people are asking the question, why? Well, another thing happened last year. The Irish government introduced legislation to give vulture funds banking licenses. And now they've legitimized them. So they're using what our banks used to do. They're taking assets. They're putting in, them into a group, a prospectus. Then they're going to DMF and generating funding based on the value of the assets. They don't want to sell the assets back. Currently, we have a housing crisis in Ireland. Um, we have over 11,000 people homeless. We have over 4,000 children, which is the highest rate of children homeless in Europe. And yet we have held by Irish banks, NAMA and Vulture Funds, in excess of 200,000 vacant properties. They're restricting the flow of properties, limiting supply, keeping house prices high, soaring rents, all dictated by banks, government, um, and as I call them, the 1%. This is replicated in every country. It doesn't matter whether it's Poland, Holland, Germany, France. My investigations has shown that the banks across the world done exactly as the Irish banks did. How the Irish banks became so corrupt and criminal was the nepotistic Irish attribute of the Asher to be all right on the night attitude. And sure, it's all us lads working together. Ironically, there's no women involved. I don't know whether that would have changing it, but uh, that's basically my history. I'm still fighting. Uh, I am this actionist. I've written two books. And when I say I've exposed I honestly expected uh, so many times to be, or actually I, I was cautioned that I was going to be arrested because I created a mass criminal investigation by Angorda Siakana into the fraud of Irish banks. I contacted Cyberpol, Interpol, Amapol, the FBI in regard to Irish banks trading illegally, having no securities license, fraudulently filling out banking licenses, and I managed on Facebook to get a lot of support of people who were doing the same. I was told uh, that I could bring the country down. But the simplest way to silence a person is just to ignore them. And that's what the Irish media have done. And they've done it very successfully. So my latest book basically chronicles everything that I've gone through, everything that everybody else has gone through. And then I started uh, in the last three months with TikTok. So many people, as I say, I, I have always considered myself as Alex Schindler. And I said, how can I get this message out to people? It's affecting everyone. It doesn't matter what country it is. We're dealing mainly now with 
vulture funds. But the first thing you have to remember is a vulture fund is a pension fund. Pension funds don't trade in securities. They de deal in pensions. Only banks trade in securities. But pension funds adopted this policy, called themselves Promatoria or Everyday or Cerebus, Tanninger, Lone Star, whatever name they have on themselves. And they're dealing in purchasing securities. But to purchase a security, you need a license. And no, secure, no vulture fund has a license. Recently, as I said, Irish banks, uh, sorry, the Irish government gave vulture funds banking licenses. But there's a little thing called the Basel. It's an international banking regulations group. Basel 1, 2, and 3, and 4, where you have to have loan-to-value ratio of security. Now, they're asset rich, but they're cash poor. They have to have 20% to the equivalent of cash ratios. They don't have it. So once again, they're trading illegally. And once again, nobody is saying a word. In, our, in the Irish government, uh, while we have an opposition party, and while they would seem to be in opposition, they're not raising significant questions of why do we, A, have a housing crisis when we have 200,000 vacant houses? Uh, why do we have house, houses soaring by 250% in the last four years when we have 200,000 vacant houses and we haven't built any houses in the last six months? We have currently vulture funds purchasing blocks of apartments in Ireland, pushing first-time buyers out and creating a cartel between them and the banks that are literally rigging rents, rigging the price of houses. Last year, there was over 6,000 houses sold, yet we have a supply of 25 years of houses and they're going on about building houses when they're already there. It's like having a food map and your, your nation is starving, and you're saying, hold on, we're growing the potatoes. Wait for them. It's the whole thing, and it's an It's, it's rotten to the core. And you mentioned about the pension funds, because around the time of the Lehman Brothers, what I heard from somebody who's very high up on the financial sector is basically because the properties then don't become triple A, they were selling them at 6%. Would they sell you the properties at 6%? No, they're selling them to each other and basically rubbing each other's backs. So then the pensions funds of certain go down. Because I mean, I, I turned 50 last October and I've been trying to get my so-called 25% pension and I'm still chasing it. Like, and from my talking to different people, that seems to be so corrupt as well. The pension funds for, for, for people and not just in Ireland. I, I, I've noticed that that's happening all around the world as well. Well, if you look at the, the latest book you have there, uh, and this affects every country. I've had people from America, Indonesia. I, I don't know how they got me, but anyway, Indonesia. Um, at the back of the book, there's a GDPR. And on my website, www.waitfortheshareup, there's a free download to GDPR. And I explain everything got to do with securities and the questions to ask. Now, internationally, every country in the 27 European states, uh, they're governed by European law, which encapsulates the GDPR of 2018, 2016 in Europe, 2018 here in Ireland. 
and they are obliged by law if they don't, it's a criminal um, issue. And you can then do them criminally. Now, the GDPR asks simple questions. And the very first one is, in every contract in the world, uh, as in the Bible, there's a little word, little word called redemption. Now, you have what's called equity of redemption of mortgage in your contract. Now, in every country in the world, this exists. And you are entitled on the day that that debt is relinquished. In other words, when your original bank sold to whoever, there was a contractual obligation in that contract to offer you the right to redeem it. Now, I explained that. I listed. I also asked a question in regard to the original bank. Um, and these questions have never been answered. They've been asked in literally every court in Ireland, because I've asked them in every jurisdiction and every county, particularly Cork. Um, if we have a bank who securitized the facility, who took out default insurance, and let me explain what default insurance is. And I use a simple analogy on TikTok. You have a watch, you're getting into hard times, you go to a pawn office, you pawn it for 100 euros, and you walk out with your 100 euros. The pawn office, who's the bank, decides, I'll take out insurance in case pawn office burns down and I lose the watch. Then I'll take out a default swap on that, which is another form of insurance, in case something happens. Then through the criminal actions of the bank, they drive over you, they make sure you can't work anymore and pay your loan, pay back the interest on the watch. Then that crystallizes, they claim the default insurance, they claim the asset swap, they get bailed out by the Irish taxpayers, and then they sell the loan to a vulture fund. How idiotic and crazy is that? But that's exactly what they're doing. So in the GDPR request, I ask simple little questions. A, and it's a very specifically framed to vulture fund securities. And you, all you have to do is guess the, the data controller's name because he or she will be sued. Now, their head is on the guillotine because if they don't answer these questions, they personally will be brought criminally, not the banks, not the vulture funds. And this has caused a lot of difficulty and a lot of trouble for vulture funds, which, of course, is probably the reason why they're not settling with me, because they want to, um, I don't know, maybe I'll die of natural causes shortly or something like that. But the reality is, is that I go into everything vulture funds don't want to answer. There's another thing uh, that's called unjust enrichment. And it is what the vulture funds are practicing right now across the world. And particularly in Europe, uh, where you have vulture funds purchasing um, assets or a portfolio. And let's say for argument's sake, it's at 300,000, the asset was worth. And with arrears and everything, it's now 700,000. But the vulture funds are purchasing it at the original cost at 20%. So they're buying it for 60 grand. Now, there's a, a thing in every European legislation called justified profit. In Ireland, it's civil fraud. Um, in every European country, it has the equivalent. And if you try to create fraud by way of deceit 
or by way of unjust enrichment. Um, that's a criminal act. So once again, I've exposed all of that in this free download uh, on my website. So again, all you have to do is send it off and process it. And if every person done that that sees this um, podcast, literally it would freeze the assets of every vulture fund in the world. And it would do what I want to do, destroy them. Like they have destroyed thousands of families, millions, countless millions, millions across the world, millions, yeah, millions. Yeah, and there's something because you're not aware of this, but basically, I think you're the first person that I've met that has had more court cases than me. I've had over a hundred, but I know you've you've had over a hundred as well. So basically, I had three Irish properties. And I had them on interest only. So they were all giving me a cash flow. And then overnight, they just took that away. And it was like, so my payments became double. And before I even missed a payment, I kind of wrote to them and said, look, I need interest only. And let me just sell them and everything. I had properties that were worth 400,000 euro dropped down to 125. So basically, they took a claim. I went to the high court. They sold one of the properties for less than what I offered them. And then they were coming after me for the excess. So I'm fighting bailiffs in Ireland. Like, first I get an affidavit. To be honest with you, I act to ask somebody, what's an affidavit? I didn't even know what it was. And I gave a reply with my own affidavit with 40-odd points. I mentioned Dennis O'Brien. I mentioned, like, how come a, um, a billionaire gets a bailout when he's got assets and I have nothing? And I was able to prove that I'd lost everything. Uh, how come there was a, another case with um, an electrician in, I think, Mayo or Tyrone, uh, John Conway, that was on BBC, where the actual, that's based on kind of what you're saying, the insurance, and they were doing insurance fraud. So the bank were caught being recorded, admitting to do in, doing insurance fraud. So I gave reference to that. I gave a list of a load of things. And they could never respond to me. So when I was in the court, I mean, it was my first kind of time in the Irish courts. I had some cases in Poland, but and normally in Poland, plaintiff defendant, and you might have the solicitor next to you and the judge. I was shocked in Ireland. I'm in a room with maybe 150 cases happening in front of one judge. Very few people are representing themselves and just all barristers, which are the highest, just for those listening, that's the highest paid kind of solicitor that you can get. And it was a case of, Listening to like a woman, my husband died from cancer. I don't know what to do. She's shaking, giving a piece of pay to the judge. Judge, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Bang, ruled in favor of the, the banks plus interest plus penalties. I had the file. They didn't even read it. He just opens it. And it was actually, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Edwin Hoonahan. He was the, the master Oh, court, yes. So he was, yeah, he actually was one that was in favor. So he brought it to the judicial. But I could see nobody. You mentioned that at the start. Nobody was winning. I heard one woman saying that uh, KPMG uh, investigated. We were overcharged 15,000 interest. And your man said, when was that? Uh, 20, two, two years previous. Oh, you should have took it up with them then. Bang. Ruled in favor of the judge, uh, of the banks, plus interest, plus bounty, plus solicitor's fees. And when it was my eighth time. So one stage, uh, a judge said, why haven't you replied to his affidavit? 
because I knew they couldn't because I had them. I had they had signed 20 different signatures, all different names with the exact same signature, this electronic signature. And I had that as well. I Basically, it was fraudulent on their side if they replied to my affidavit, which they didn't. And I, like one judge said, why have you not replied to his affidavit? And I award him 1400 because he's coming from Poland, a euro for travel expenses. You've got three weeks or there'll be serious consequences. And I was convinced I was going to win. And on the eighth time that I was in the high court, it was a case of the judge started reading and he go, oh, this is going to take too long. I'll check it at the lunch and then we'll do it. So you're listening to all of the cases. And come lunchtime, at two o'clock, 2.30, he starts going through it again and he goes, oh, it's taking longer. So he put it up to five. So I'm in the court the whole day. You know yourself, being in the court, your energy's gone. And me personally, like my insides prior to going into court, like, no, it's nothing to me. But then just the nerves and just, you know, it's just a shock to the system. And when the barrister is saying everything, the judge is there and then it's my turn. And the judge just kept stopping me and just repeated what the barrister said. There was even a person stood up to try to defend me and he told him, shut up or get out. And... Yeah. And basically, I was like, this is fully corrupt. They have not responded to my thing. They're not answering. So he says, rule in favor of the banks. And then they went for the interest. So basically on that case, it was a property that it was like 220,000 euro. And I had an offer of 200,000 euro. I said, full and final sentiment, which they should have bit my hand off. They refused. And they sold it less and came after me for the excess. So it was- I'll explain to you why they do that. And it's the one question- that everybody from the very start asked me, why, Tom, why won't he settle? And it is a very simple process, which unfortunately, because of the international uh, media blank um, blanket, has never been um, opened. If you have a loan of 400,000 euros and you fall into arrears, or the loan is called in and crystallized, and as I've explained, there's derivatives and default swaps and credit default swaps and insurance all attached to it. The bank never loses because the first thing they need to do is gain the asset because that's part of the securitization process. So they need the asset irrespective of how much it was, it was sold for. So you get a sheriff or a bailiff and he uses security. And the asset is taken back and it's cost with legal costs about 80,000, with sheriff costs in Ireland can be up to 30,000. And the bank sells it for 10,000. And straight away you're going, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, it does, you see, because the 80 and the, and the 30 is 110. And then they got 10, which is 120. But the banks claim the full value of the loan plus interest. And not just interest up to the date, interest with a full duration. So the banks walk out with 600 grand. You walk out with nothing, homeless. And this is done on millions of cases. Going back to the barrister, the junior barrister, who I wrote about in my first book, and I called him Damien West because I didn't want to give him the recognition or the notoriety that this sociopath actually would enjoy. He was a junior barrister for three years, but he was the bank's 
chosen Pontius Pilate. And as I wrote my first book, people just didn't have any hope of defending themselves. He was actually directing judges what to say and telling judges the law, telling judges that there was no option, that he had to grant possession order. Now, it was slightly different in my cases, which I'm now to over 130. Um, and we had numerous battles between us. Um, and at one stage, which I suppose I might as well bring in some humor, um, he actually said in the Supreme Court that he was fully aware of what my wife was thinking when she signed the documents. Now, my wife signed no documents. And as I said to the Supreme Court, I'm fully aware, I won't mention his name at the moment, uh, that he is gay and he's quite feminine and he's in touch of, with his femininity. But I've been married to my wife for 40 years and I don't even know what she's thinking, never mind saying. So, and this barrister made millions, millions. Actually, I was told by his devil, his junior, that I had made him over a million tree. Now, he was appointed senior counsel two years ago. And during the last six weeks, he's been appointed the Attorney General of Ireland. His name is Russell Fanning. It is the first time in Irish history that counsel only appointed two years senior has been appointed the Attorney General of Ireland by his very close friend, Leo Varaka. And that will tell you the in-depth of corruption within this country. Uh, I have spoken to thousands. I've given, I give free seminars around Ireland, have done, uh, I had a, an office in Cork that I went to for three years every Friday, assisting and offering everybody help until the train fares went up. I couldn't afford it any longer. And there is, I've seen and witnessed Rosa Fanning, uh, literally devastate families. I witnessed a man walking out where his trousers urinated and he took his life. I have seen, I've been at hundreds of suicide funerals. And when I said that the barrister ignored a Supreme Court order and he went in and had the Supreme Court order discontinued, that was Ireland's new Attorney General, Russell Fanning. It shows you the contempt they have and disregard for the laws of Ireland and the Constitution. But I am hoping that with my new book, Irish Tears, A Nation Betrayed, that with the GDPR at the back and free download, it's going to arm people to ask the appropriate questions, to get precedents and authorities across the world. There is no justice in Ireland. I was in court yesterday regarding the constitutional case. And because I haven't brought the case, and I claimed, and this, this was the litany of reasons why I said I hadn't brought it. My home burned to the ground. I'm penniless. I'm not working. I lost my mother. I lost my two brothers. I lost my father. My son lost his sight. And my wife has a debilitating disability. I, was, I also said that I had two Supreme Court orders in my favor, costs, 
one for 10 years and one for six years. And I haven't received a penny. I was told that wasn't a reason enough. The only other reason left was that I died. And yet that is Irish law. Now I'm appealing that decision. And of course, I have to pay 250 euros just to actually appeal it. Where I come up with that money, they don't care. I asked for the DAR reporting, which is the digital audio recording of the case. And that is 450 euros. In the case, the judge actually stated in a judgment that, and her name is Judge Stack, which I'm now writing about in my new book, um, that she considered the barrister who discontinued the Supreme Court case was right. So it doesn't matter if you go through the High Court process and the Court of Appeal process and the Supreme Court process, they just turn around and go, don't like the answer, don't like the order, let's move on. Um, I say ultimately what's going to happen is, is that a lot of cases will end up in the European Courts of Human Rights. Um, it's terrible to say that there is thousands of such cases. In my first book, I wrote about so many people who were made homeless, so many people who took their lives. And during IBIG's era, um, I actually had their accounts checked and they were all overcharged. One, actually, the gentleman who took his life at the start, he was 67,000 euros overcharged. He should have having 30 grand in his account today, he took his life. And whether this will ever be exposed, um, the only thing I have in my favor is, is that my books are my legacy. I've never been sued by liable by anybody. Uh, and I've exposed judges, ministers, Dennis O'Brien, TDs, legal firms, uh, members of uh, the Irish media, and nobody in this country has sued me for libel. So I'm hoping with assistance from people like yourself. And again, as I say, um, I managed with the help of Liam Deegan. He's an Irish journalist who just exposed in the Irish Independent uh, the issue of uh, Pascal, um, oh, the Minister of uh, Pascal, oh, it'll come to me anyway, um, exposed the whole issue of uh, the, the criminality that he was involved in and Damien English. And that was all in the Sunday Independent. Um, with the assistance of Liam Deegan, he managed to get me an article in the Irish Central in America. And that ran for seven days regarding my latest book. So I'm hoping that whether one person um, that we're talking to right now hears this, uh, or talking about hears this, um, it will help in a system. It'll save a family, save a life, save a home and definitely save children from it. Um, I'm hoping the European courts, when I gave the statistics at the start, uh, it is alarming to consider um, the percentage of cases in Ireland that don't have a favorable outcome um, when you consider a closest I, I didn't see one, and I was nearly the full day for eight times. So that's hundreds of cases, not one that I see ruled i got the best result which was they tried to get interest and they didn't and 
just on because some countries, if you appeal, it's just on the appeal amount. But in Ireland, if you appeal, it can open up the whole case plus additional costs. So I looked at appealing and it was 65,000 versus it could be up to half a million. So then I went to look at going to the European Union and you can only do that if you appeal. So I was in a catch 22. Absolutely. And the reason why I didn't appeal the original case was because I had a constitutional case running. And as you say, as I say constantly, I even said it before the court yesterday, that where am I supposed to generate funding for a legal advocate when there is no service or facility for any form of legal representation? And I would consider myself quite first in law. And yet, no matter what legislation, law or violation um, I have raised in court, they've all been ignored, other than the Supreme Court, where they were forced when I produced the documentation that had been furnished by our new Attorney General, Russell Fanning, that it was a complete act of fraud. And if that was done by me, I would have been arrested and brought down to the local police station and then processed into a prison. But again, um, it is Europe. It is definitely true, I suppose, members of the media like yourself who will have the courage and tenacity to actually repeat and open it out. I've said consistently that I'm open to go to any seminar, any college campus, any bingo hall to give this information because I know I've saved because I receive enough correspondence, save thousands of families. And even to say one is good for me, but um, I know what people are going through on a daily basis. I also know that it was all deliberate. It was all fraud. It was all choreographed. And again, it's never been exposed. And I 100% um, concur on that. I, my three properties, I didn't get one piece of correspondence how they were sold. I don't even know the other two, how much they sold for. I found out that they were put into a portfolio. Everything of that is fraudulent. And just going back to the, the sheriff that stepped on your son, was there any, did we able to do anything? I mean, he was vermin to be like that. Like, was there anything ever done to him about that? Well, we took a case. My son took a case of assault. Now, again, we had the audio and video. And we went to Angardashir Corner. I put them in a sealed bag and I signed it uh, in regard to uh, evidence, the chain of evidence. And we went to our local guard station and they said, no, come back at six o'clock on a Friday morning. So we came back at six o'clock on a Friday morning. Then we were told to come back the following Saturday morning, uh, eight days later to Santry at four o'clock in the morning. And this went on for six weeks. Ultimately, we did end up going in and then we were told that the evidence was contaminated. Uh, we then went, my son went and took out a civil action. And the day John Fitzpatrick, the sheriff, walked on my son twice, and he was actually videotaped doing it, uh, I told him, which I'm, I believe, um, that what you do in life eventually comes back on you, uh, regardless of who you are. And it's usually the innocent that you pays for your sins. And I'm 60 years of age, and I've I've seen a lot of my life. And I said to him, you will pay for this someday. I don't know how, but you will pay for it someday. And unfortunately, um, his daughter, who was the captain of um, 
the helicopter down at Fitzpatrick, uh, she was lost. That horrific accident. Uh, I'm not saying that they're connected, but I'm saying that he has paid for his sins. I've witnessed that man drag people who were blind, videotaped it. It was on Facebook, dragged out of their homes. I've witnessed the most horrific and barbaric acts that belong in war crimes, that belong in stories from Auschwitz. We have currently members of the Irish government, 160 in total, that advocate to resolve the homeless crisis. They're like the Gestapo advocating for Jewish rights because all they do is talk. I went five, seven years ago with Right to Homes to a local authority, Fingal, and told them, non-profit, this is a, a solution to the homeless crisis and it can be adopted in any country. I said, I had formerly 68 men working for me. They're all of my vintage, age, old, and unemployed. Give them tax credits. Let them work, give a social land, and remove VAT from building materials. And I can build a 13, 1400 square foot, three bedroomed house for 128,000 euros nonprofit. No. They gave the contract to Dennis O'Brien at over 238,000 fixed contract that kept soaring in price. Again, I will go to the media and report this, silence. It, people have asked me, how after 14 years can I still keep going? My answer has always been the same. If I save one family, one person, then I'm happy. And it is exhausting. It truly is. But if people like myself, I call myself and term myself a whistleblower. And I've spoken to Ireland's whistleblowers, whether it be um, Morris McCabe. Um, you know, if you just look at what happened to that man, it is absolutely disgusting. And they actually special. call it truth tellers because they even they make it look like say the whistleblowers is a bad thing when in reality it's actually helping humanity. So I call them truth tellers because they've made it look like I mean I know they were kind of nailing a, a rat to his door and everything. He got a turn. Oh, what they done to him was just and there will be a story. I hope someday he might write his story. Um but and if there's thousands of Morris McCabe's in this country and they're all over the world um, and the whole issue of you know as you say truth tellers or whatever tightly a place on them but um, you do I became ostracized my children well when I say my, my youngest is now 33 my eldest is 41 uh, they paid for my actions um, and I keep saying to them that irrespective of what we're doing we're assisting people helping people giving somebody even this podcast is going to give somebody some comfort this evening or tonight knowing that well hold on this guy who literally didn't know anything was able and still to this day 14 years on and 
So say 10 years this month since my son was knocked unconscious. Um, that I'm still here, I'm still going, I'm still fighting the fight. And I've done literally everything possible, humanly possible, from right to homes to IBIG to legal and equitable. So, so many um, things that I've set up around Ireland facilitating families. And yes, it is exhausting, but I feel that if we group together, doesn't matter how small the group is, and we remove the, the male ego, and on a passing note, people will, if they look at the prime time interview, they will see that I was aligned to Direct Democracy Ireland when I was running as an MEP, uh, because that actually paid for my platform because you have to pay an entrance. I paid my 250 euros for advertisements, but I did manage to get 4,000 first preference votes, which was the first ever for a candidate running. Um, I wrote the constitution for direct democracy. And if anybody wants a constitution for a political party, um, what I've done was, and I've used um, the, I suppose the new modern apps and everything, National Revolving National Executive Council every seven years, an app system of quorum voting, um, gender equality. Um, you have a system of self-policing, uh, minimum, maximum salary, fixed pricing on all utilities, and it goes on and on and on. I sought that to be proposed and ratified. Unfortunately, I had to leave DD, uh, Direct Democracy Ireland. Again, that, that constitution is there. Ironically, it sought to reintroduce Article 47 and 48 of the Irish Constitution, which was people-initiated referendum, which was taken out by the very first Fine Gael government uh, because it wasn't uh, advantage to them. We need to change the political perspectives. Just for those that don't know about uh, Article 48, that's basically that they couldn't be evicted, really, isn't it? It's kind of well, people can initiate a referendum on laws that they consider is repugnant or, or unacceptable. And it's like the French. Um, I, I've often wondered, there must be some form of Irish descendancy in the French, how rebellious they are, how active they are. The Irish, I suppose, any psychologist will tell you that if you go from one aspect of being rebellious and fighting, you go to being passive to the opposite spectrum. And the passive will eventually become rebellious. Now we're caught in that midstream between now and the, the, the next generation of my grandchildren. But um, we do need to, to seek uh, transparency. We do need to answer the questions. How much did the banks really get? Why are these vulture funds getting tax-free profits, billions. Why are the government, you know, in, in any other industry, it would be a direct conflict of interest, you know, to, you'd, you'd have to have a non-compete where you invite somebody in, you give them billions and they put you on their board. Uh, you introduce legislation for water tax and you give that contract to Dennis O'Brien. And then, Ministers are appointed onto his board. You know, Colin O'Doherty from AIB gave Dennis O'Brien the money for Irish Water. Now Colin O'Doherty is on the board of Dennis O'Brien's Topaz. And again, the corruption in this country, I could keep talking for hours.
and I don't know how you're going to edit no, all this. No, no, it's, and I'm not editing. It's going out as is because everything, single thing that you've said, a, a lot of it I've been aware of and I've gone through my own journey and I concur with everything you've said. And like, even with say Matty, who has helped you put the book up, I was watching a video recently that he was in the dial and he was talking about kind of the World Economic Forum and all the different things. Everything he said was true because I've read about Agenda 21 and the different thing. And you had the, the leader and the second in command, Leo and Michal yeah. Martin, and they're laughing at him. And it reminded me of Enda Kenny laughing at people previously. And you're like, this is supposed to be the people that are kind of running the country. And they're laughing at somebody telling the truth. It's pathetic to see it. Well, I went again. It's in my latest book, uh, Irish Tears and Nation Betrayed. Just another plug there, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, he, Matty McGrath, I asked Matty McGrath, Michael, uh, Matty Healy Ray, uh, Michael Healy Ray, and um, Michael Collins, TD, to join Jerry Beads. Uh, we, if you go on my Facebook or you might find it on a video, we carried a coffin into the Irish Permanent Building Society on the head office in Stevens Green. And we caused a little bit of a disruption. And literally, they managed to give us uh, a meeting. We forced that meeting. What they didn't know was that I was the director of IBIG at the time. And Irish Permanent were intending to transfer 16,500 families to vulture farms. I took a synopsis of a hundred of those families and found every one of them were overcharged, that they were intending to transfer, claiming that these people were strategic defaulters. And at the meeting, and Matty uh, McGrath was there, Michael Healy Ray was there, we we're all around the table, Michael Collins, Jerry Beads. Um, I asked a director of finance of, of Irish government TSB, what would you consider that a man who lost his business, his home, his finances, made destitute, was overcharged 600,000 euros when the day the receiver was appointed. What would you say to that man? And he said, well, we have to deal it case on case. And I opened the coffin and I took out one bundle of 100 and said, there's the report from the largest forensic firm in the world that identifies that you illegally capitalized the interest, you illegally charged and manipulated the interest, and you committed fraud. What would you say to that man? And he didn't know. And I said, well, you can turn around and ask Jerry Bees, because that's the man. There is over everyone. They still, they said that they would suspend it. They gave an undertaking to three sitting members of Dolairn. Two months later, I attended the AGM of Irish Permanent Building Society and juries, stated what was said, and I was politely asked to leave. They transferred 16,500 families. How many have taken their lives? How many thousands have been made homeless? How many families have been destroyed? They are instilling hatred, racism by their actions. And they're causing a nation that feel worthless. 
that word I, I hear constantly from people when I'm talking to them. It always comes up in the conversation. They feel worthless, particularly men. They've emasculated men. They have taken the concept of a man and his manhood away, the provider or husband or protector. And subsequent, that's at one stage, I was told of 17 people in Cork in one week alone who took their lives. And not newsworthy, not, not, nobody has any I, interest. I remember with the judgment, basically they're threatening you saying this, they will put this on a newspaper unless you get a result. Yeah. So like you're on your knees, you're depressed because of you never expected something like this. And then they come along, not only the, the phone calls, all the phone calls that you get, because, and, and just touching on because I definitely have to get you back, Tom, because we've only touched, we've only scratched the surface here. But I remember when I actually, I think it's six euro that you, you can get all the information from the bank on your, the whole thing. Everything is blacked out. Like, how can you actually have a case to defend yourself when everything is, is blacked out? There's no way that you can decipher what the, what was actually written there. In my very first book, uh, Waiting for the Sheriff, as I said, I was getting a lot of whistleblowers. And I'll never forget this person who came to me, ironically, from the AIB. Uh, and she was fully aware of who I was. But she was a trained psychologist. And I didn't believe her. I actually had to see her credentials before I believed her. But she told me she was implied by AIB to sit in court, to analyze the, the books, to analyze all the documentation, to see the physical and human characteristics of the husband, wife, partner. And then they would target, they would know because of the application forms, date of births, birthdays, anniversary, kids' birthdays. And they would send deliberately to attack the mental status of the individual who they consider the weakest one, whether it be the husband or the wife, that their house was going to be sold before Christmas, that was going up on the market, that they were going to be evicted, that they were going to be humiliated. They would send days before children's birthdays, uh, and it was all choreographed. They still do that to this day. And yet, that form of psychological torture is apparent in the likes of Quatam and Obey, and yet it's being practiced on a daily basis in Ireland. As I said, I ran an ad on RTE. Ironically, I wrote a story in my latest book uh, about talk to Joe, Joe Duffy. On the Joe Duffy show, uh, my ad was running. Have you been overcharged? Have a free mortgage check. And yet Joe Duffy was talking about overcharging and he wouldn't have me on. Um, <laughs> And while I was talking to the researcher, she actually asked me to get her accounts checked. So it's the whole hardening of it. And I'm hoping someday, I'm hoping I'll still be around to enjoy it. But as I say, my books uh, are there for everybody. They were Irish Tears Nation Betrayed. It's 10 euros because I wanted to keep the price down to the price of a back. And it's the, the publisher who gets the 90%. I don't. Um, so, again, it's the whole thing is just to inform people, to save people. And I think that's what's wrong with the world, that 
my generation, maybe it's because my coal business went, maybe it was because my taxi business went. I know what it's like to be evicted. I know what it's like to witness your child being assaulted. I know I've experienced so much in my life that I think, as you say, truth tellers or whistleblowers um, are courageous in one sense. But I think if you asked every one of them the one question, would they do it again? I think they would pull and hard. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Yeah, no problem. And just finally, just to let people know, because we're kind of talking international, just on one of the uh, projects that I had in Poland with the sheriffs, because we mentioned the sheriffs, they bribed, I was told not to go in there, I was tipped off how, to, how the system worked. They actually bribed everybody in the room in the bidding process and they had their own cronies buying it. I had another commercial property that I was a syndicate with and basically the valuer valued it at less than half its true value. So at the first sale, it's 75% and they don't, what they do is they do a screenshot pretending it's advertised. So they have proof, but it's never really there. Nobody turns up. And then they're they're buying it at 50%, but not 50% of its true value, 50% of its fake value. And that's going on around the world. So I like I commend you in all you're doing. Like this is your second book. And looking forward to your third one. But definitely, Tom, I have to get you back. And I'll also invite you on to because I do a live call with international podcasters as well. I'll get you on that because I know this is actually affecting everybody in the world and you might just let them know i know you mentioned the the website but you might just let the different websites the best way to contact you uh www.waitingforthesheriff.com is probably the easiest one uh, anybody who wants to download and it does affect when i was drafting with the assistance of securities experts in america we drafted this gdpr request and again it's either freedom of information or gdpr Every country in the world has a legal requirement to give the information and you're entitled in law to have it. And that's why we target. I've given specific instructions why, how it's needed and to reveal, because my belief in all of this is, is that no matter what is affecting a country, whether it's money, budgetary issues, it's got to do with two things, banking and housing. And if you're pumping money into housing and banking, uh, the difference between mortgage charges in Ireland and Poland, uh, believe it or not, on a 300,000 euro loan over 25 years is approximately 68,000 euros minimum to 120,000 difference in charge. Ironically, I can go to Poland, buy a house, and I can get a banking loan at about 2.35%. But yeah, I can't get a bank in Poland to give me a loan for a house in Ireland. I have to go to an Irish bank at 6%. And again, it everything has got to do with money. And how we deal with it is exposing it, is giving knowledge to each other. And I feel consistently that no matter how much information we can get out, if people just direct somebody, Right now, believe it or not, Ireland is a very small country in comparison to the 26 European states. The population is half most of them, apart from the Balkan states like Moldova. But um, somebody today in Ireland, a family is going to lose their loved one. There's going to be three people who are going to take their lives. And it's all got to do with money. It's all got to do with housing. It's all got to do with 
um, the desecration of even the creation of um, new relationships. It's everything has got to do with it. And obviously there's issues in health and all of that, but if you had the money that's being extorted and fraudulently taken, you'd have enough money to pump into your health services. So again, it's just getting that information out there. And this taboo, which we have been conditioned in Ireland, I, I don't even talk to some of my neighbours because I'm categorised as this person, the strategic defaulter. Uh, you're going against you know, the norm, the convention. You didn't pay your loans without even understanding that I didn't have to pay my loan, how they committed fraud. And every person, irrespective of who it is today, no matter what country in the world, who's listening to this right now, they've been a victim of fraud. And if it's a vulture fund, they have been a victim of fraud and they are a victim of fraud because there's been fraud committed against them. Ironically, there's so many groups throughout, throughout Europe. We have the Securities Exchange, we have the European Securities Commission. We have Severpol, Interpol, Amapol. We have all of these groups, international policing agencies, who are not seeing, nobody is going to them and going, I want this investigated. I want to know, did they have a securities license? Did they have a banking license? Were they trading illegally? Did they register the asset lawfully? Did they acquire it lawfully? Did the original lender have a derivative or a security or an insurance attached to the facility. Did the original lender claim, as I proved in my latest book, claim tax relief for the entire loan? In one of my files, I can I'm prove... still getting the tax relief forms from properties. Yes. Yeah, They don't even own. <laughs> they sold to a vulture fund years ago. Yeah. And again, for political reasons. Now, again, I, I have to state my, my naivety or ignorance in Poland about who's appointed or who appoints who, but in Ireland, the government appoints everybody of influence. They appoint judges, they appoint charity regulators, they appoint the media, they appoint everybody. So they're the puppet masters. I'm never going to get an interview in Ireland. I was told that 14 years ago. And there is, you know, the latest... Um, member of the European Parliament elections is going to come. So I might be, if I can get somebody to kind of back the, the, the advertisement, I'll do it because I want to go back on RTE and ask them the question why a whistleblower in Ireland who wrote two books, who had a book raised in Dáil Éireann, who had supported by the Catholic Church and the Archbishop's Council, was ignored by RTE. That's the one question I want asked, answered. You know and I know I won't get an answer, but I want to ask it at least. Oh, no, no, it's, it's worth it. And just like because a lot of people use, they throw out the thing, oh, you didn't pay your loan back and all that. Just to let you, like here, I was doing a development here and like a friend of mine, they had already had a property. They were married at the time. He was a professor and uh, she was a solicitor. They had 50% to put down on a house. They couldn't get the loan. So basically like, the Fed, where all the money goes through, the whole system, no, like Poland don't own the Bank of Poland, Ireland doesn't own the Bank of Ireland. They turned off the tap, stopped lending, and then they just done exactly what you said. So they were kind of triple returning on everything. 
they own all the assets now and how many people have unfortunately taken their lives i've seen even read about the poor woman and i want to touch on that the next day because i definitely have to get you back living in a car and i saw that when i went to the high court people living around it, it was sick what was going on but i think we'll go into personal cases the next time that uh, that you come on because it's so important to touch but listen tom thoroughly enjoyed our conversation i'm going to make sure that i put the website and your tiktok because you give fantastic information on that as well as the name of the books both on the audio and the the video i certainly appreciate and i have to say as i said at the start you're the first uh international other than the exception of a local dublin radio station there hasn't been anybody in the world to give me an interview apart from yourself this morning well, I'll make sure I'll get a few orders for you as well. And I'll talk to you personally about that later when we're off here. So thank you very much. Thanks very much. Cheers. So Bye-bye. That's, that's all for the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. As mentioned, we're on BitChute. I can put this one on my own personal YouTube channel because they won't actually uh, take that one off. This one is safe enough to go. And as mentioned, I've got four other podcasts as well as being a podcasting coach. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcasters. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, and also subscribe to Tom's TikTok because it all helps and give him a few hearts as well. Until next week, take care.